Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host, David Gibney, this week, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Michelle Byrne. I think Claire O'Connor might be joining us somewhere along the way as well. She hasn't joined the, the recording as it stands. Um, the Week at Work is part of Left Block, um, an alternative media and political education project. You can support us and find out more at patreon.com forward slash left block. Um, we will have a special episode actually um, coming up over the next week or two. Uh, I sat down and had a conversation with Joe Carolan, um, an Irish man from Dundalk who 20 odd years ago moved over to New Zealand and has um, established and set up a, a trade union of their own 15 years ago um, called Unite in in, um, in New Zealand and I had a, a long chat with him about the differences between the Australia or the, the New Zealand model of trade unionism and the Irish model of trade unionism and the impacts that has on workers so we'll get to that um, over the next week or two so watch out for it um, as always the week at work you know discusses and goes through some of the big stories of the week and the newspapers this weekend so Michelle I'll go straight over to you to see what have you been looking at what newspaper have you been looking at and what stories have you picked up on there well, I was reading the Sunday Business Post and um, it's very obvious that it's silly season, Dave, because there's not a lot <laughs> in it. Like, um, aside from, you know, kind of like puff pieces about different companies and all of that, the actual news stories are, you know, not there's not a lot coming through that for discussion. But I'm sure we always find uh, something to discuss, Dave, between ourselves anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, the front page um, of the Sunday Business Post, again, uh, energy crisis minister admits that businesses are now under threat. So this is talking about um, businesses um, paying their electricity fees and how that you know that won't be making their companies viable um but he also it's it's also clear that there's a lobby behind this as well because they're teasing out this piece around the emergency tariffs that have been talked about how big companies are going to p- pay their fair share when it comes to um you know the amount of energy that they use and all of that and i don't think they're happy about it um and it's interesting it goes into some of the detail that there's about two thousand large businesses that are going to be hit by this kind of increased energy tariff um which is going to apparently bring in 100 million in revenues that will then go on to secure our energy security for next year not this year but next year um but actually 22 of those 2000 companies are going to be paying 50 million of it so obviously you can 22 of these large companies are the ones who are going to be paying the bulk of it but of course um the the interest of the the, the, the 2000 companies are going to be represented in the in this lobby to try and peel back on that but i suppose there's worry about how um it's working and it's mentioned that there's data centers involved in um some of that so finally they're actually naming it um but other than that there is there's not mu- too much more in that that like there is talks about how um you know the government are astounded that they had absolutely no warnings about this energy security issue never had an, an and um you know some of the energy uh bodies have come out and said that's absolute <laughs> like bull that you've been warned years ago that this has happened and you've just ignored it but you can see already the government are trying to say oh it's air grid and the CR, CRU's kind of fault we had no warnings we knew nothing about this it's not our fault it's gonna be blackouts hmm. this winter um and they're astounded they're shocked caught off guard all of these words i've heard bandied around in the last week um about about this um and of course you have like adrian cummins lobbying then as well in the middle of it i don't know how that man gets mm-hmm. quoted on literally every single thing it's so annoying but uh he's he's rowing in as well saying that you know they also need grants now and stuff like that to cover the costs um but it's interesting um like it, it, it 
it's a conversation to be had, I suppose. But um, on the other side of things, uh, there's a piece saying how like Mihal Martin actually pledges energy security. So in the uh, in some of the small uh, stories of the in the Post Plus, he says that he's pledged the security of electricity supply for industry as the country braces for power shortage this winter. Now, note how it says industry. <laughs> Whoa. Why is he pledging security just for industry? Are we not getting mm. going to be pledged security as well as individuals in our homes who might need energy to, you know, heat, live? Like people do die from not having access to, to heat. So like, yeah. you know, that's that's interesting how that's been framed. But he is saying that apparently, I don't I think that's a very bold move to be pledging something like that. Um, when when we've just been told that the energy, um, the energy sent the energy extra power. Um, that they were planning for this winter isn't going to be done. So, like, I don't know how he's pledging that. Um, mm. But at the same time, there's been... Obviously, you can see the lobby around energy and businesses and industry already coming ahead of the budget. So it'll be interesting to see what actually comes out of that. Well, that that's an interesting one, because Conor Skehan uh, in the Sunday Independent has a, a whole piece entitled, like, the headline is, This is who to blame if the lights go out this winter. Um, and like very direct, um, I did look through it. Not one mention of climate change in this article that's talking about energy usage and, and all the rest of it. But he's basically taking the the blame and the finger pointing away from the data centers and saying that people knew years ago uh, about the issues that we were going to have around this stuff and haven't done anything. So effectively, who he's blaming um, is the planning system, the people who are planning um, around our energy. But it's a it's a real dig um, at the renewable energy sector. He's saying when the wind doesn't blow, it doesn't doesn't matter how many turbines are available. We have more than 300 wind farms in Ireland. Zero multiplied by 300 is still zero. Like you go on this. This is what I'm saying no mention of climate change whatsoever. He's making the argument that we go back to burning fossil fuels to provide our energy. Like, And after the summer we've all had, after what we've just seen is happening currently in Pakistan, where almost a thousand people are dead, there are buildings that are just being washed away. Uh, 30 million people, I think it is, impacted by the floods that are happening in Pakistan right now. We have this prick in the Sunday Independent making arguments that we should just go back to burning gas, uh, allow LPG um, burn coal, burn anything you can in order to provide the energy that we need. Like, there's just uh, how this stuff gets printed really pisses me off. You know, it, the, the media has a, a we, I know we've discussed this before, but the media has a lot of blame around some of the issues that we face um, on this planet. But like, why does this arsehole constantly get? A, a big space in Ireland's large selling newspaper, like someone that's, you know, he refuses to address the issue of our times. Now, he's not going to, you know, looking at the picture of him there, it doesn't look like he's going to be around to face most of the impacts of climate change in the next 100 years or so, right? So maybe that's it. Maybe he just doesn't give a shit about future generations. But there are other people in this country who do care about future generations and what they have to grow up in. And if this summer is anything to go by, it's not going to be a very pleasant planet for those people. So, um, yeah, I, there's two or three articles in. I read the Sunday Independent this morning and I read the uh, Independent yesterday. 
And what I found interesting on this, staying with this topic, is fuel limits. This is the front page of The Independent yesterday. Fuel limits more likely as petrol pipe prices to soar. So we've seen a slight decrease in the petrol prices over the last couple of um, weeks um, from, I think they were about a high of €2.05, €2.10, but it's down to one eighty again now. And they're saying that it's going to go back up uh, very shortly. Um, it's funny how they, they can predict all this stuff. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and this is on foot as well. It's mentioned on the front page here, uh, uh, on the same article. Meanwhile, it has emerged that SSE Electricity is pushing up its electricity charges by more than thirty five percent. Thirty five percent, just like what? <laughs> you know, we've seen we've seen all the data. I haven't got it in front of me, but we've seen the statistics over the last two or three weeks of the record profits. Not just SSE Electricity, but all of the energy companies are making massive, massive profits. And they're still having the cheek and the balls to up their prices. Now, if ever there was an argument for renationalization of an industry, at a, this this is the moment for it. This is where you'd hope that some political party would come out there, like Jeremy Corbyn did in 2017, 18, and just said it outright. Because I'm sure, I'm sure there's a lot of people over in Britain who are regretting that Corbyn didn't get into government because when you nationalise uh, and when you take it back into public ownership, clearly the profit motive is gone. There's no need to increase prices and it's easier for the state itself to put price freezes on these things. So, um, It'll be know. interesting to see who's going to make that call though, Dave, because like as Sinn Féin grow in popularity in the polls and closer to government, are we going to see them making proposals like this because this is what you know is actually needed? Um, and now is the time for them to speak up um, if this is the kind of you know proposals that we likely to see um, or is it not maybe it's not and maybe people start need to maybe need to think about that a bit more are we going to be seeing proposals like renationalize electricity in this kind of a crisis with profit soaring when that's clearly the policy decision that needs to be made like if you actually look at the figures the pre-tax profit was up 44 percent to 3.5 billion as of March this year, 3.5 billion in pre-tax profits. And this is... Who's that for? Who's that for? That's uh, SSE Airtricity. <laughs> so that's SSE Airtricity, 3.5 billion, up 44% since, uh, up to March 2022. So as as well as the, them mentioning, um, like this is a 35% increase in gas and 39%, er, sorry, 35% in electricity, 39% in gas. This is the fifth increase since 2021. So that's on top of all of the other increases that people have had to shoulder already. Mm. Like, yeah, it's just... It's sickening. But instead of what we've just discussed there is the option of who's going to come forward with this proposal for a renationalization of our energy industry, we have um, from page of today's Sunday, Indo, uh, and they've, they've used the phrase themselves, government to hit energy companies with token windfall tax. So uh, they're planning on bringing in a super profit levy which will raise 100 million so just put that in context of what you've just said said in terms of the about the profits that are being made uh, from one company by the way but this is going to apply to all energy companies and it will raise a measly 100 million is what they're talking about but the article itself goes into detail and says that the government itself well they 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 imply anyway that the government itself is saying that it's going to be a tokenistic um attempt to keep energy companies honest, right? Um, very, very interesting in the difference in reporting on the front page of the business post. It's the same 100 million where where you have all the companies lobbying, oh, we just wouldn't be able to do that. Whereas the other reporting is saying that's tokenistic and that even the government said that there's not one bit of mention of that in the front page of the business post. 
Well, wait, wait, look at it. Like to paragraph three, the government is anxious not to burn energy companies and possibly deter them from investing in much needed, mostly renewable infrastructure projects here. So the excuse is renewable energy that these companies, if you if you hit them with these taxes, um, that they won't invest. Do you know what you could do, Mr. Government? You could hit them with a really severe penalty tax on this if you wanted to take that money and invest it in renewables yourself and stop relying on these companies. Um, however, it believes a windfall tax on such companies would be popular with the public and it intends to press ahead with a token measure. So this is what we're subjected to. While people are you know, rightly outraged at the price increases that are going on. The government are going, how can we soften the cough here slightly? We don't want to do it too much, just a teeny, teeny, teeny little bit so that these, uh, so that we can basically get elected again, but at the same time, keep these guys making huge profits. So uh, pretty depressing. I'll read this morning. I have to say when I'm looking through it, um, just about nobody really willing to tackle the bigger issue here. Uh, you know, a tokenistic windfall tax is not going to help people. And, you know, from work that I've looked at in the past and, and studies that have been produced for this country, uh, for, for, for this island, including by the Institute of Public Health in Ireland, like we have the highest uh, excess winter mortality rate in all of Europe. So in the winter months, more people die from the cold in Ireland than any other country in Europe. And large part of that is because we have such high fuel poverty rates. So how is the government, and we're, we're coming up to a budget now, how is the government going to deal with that? If we had all that as a problem before this crisis, how is the government going to deal with the excess winter mortality and fuel poverty uh, crisis that has been in place for over 10, maybe 15 years now at this at this stage. So, um, yeah, it, there's there's a fair bit of um, articles around this. Oh, well, just to stick with this energy crisis stuff, right, and the cost of living crisis. Again, there's a heap of articles. Uh, one yesterday by Charlie Weston. Let me see if I can dig this one out. Um, I might not be able What basically giving people advice on what they can do to reduce their bills and all the rest of it. Uh, I can't see the Charlie Weston one. But there is uh, another one this morning. How to ease the cost of living. Wash little, eat tin fish and lay off the drink. That's the solution. The main solutions that are being put forward by the sudden day independent today. Now, in fairness, the article does go into great detail, much more detail around toiletries, energy costs, the car, clothing, drink, uh, food. Uh, and there's a conclusion in it. But not once does it mention join a trade union get everybody in your workplace to join a trade union and mobilize for significant pay increases, which is the one thing that will address all of this crisis is if workers in profitable companies can start taking a larger share of the profits that they've helped to generate, put it in their pockets, let them spend it in the local economy and then regenerate uh, our society that way. So yeah, but there's nothing in, in either paper around uh, getting into a union and, and, and making the case for a higher paying well, in But instead, the Business Post have decided to publish a piece by the minister warning unions not to be asking for pay increases. Oh. So uh, McGrath asks unions to show flexibility in new pay talks. So essentially um, what what's happening here is like, obviously there's the, there's negotiations going at the moment and um, they've already kind of uh, pushed back on it because there was a fight they suggested a five percent pay increase over two years which 
doesn't even cover anything um at all like how that was going to be even considered uh, is like like it's an insult anyway but um yeah so basically the whole piece i won't even go to the details of it but like basically just been like ah now calm down lads i'll put something in the budget for you and that therefore you won't need a pay, paid rise at all it'll just and it, it even says it like it'll just be a once-off measure and that'll be grand that'll that'll stop you asking for a pay increase um but uh please please consider the budget coming up um there'll be loads in it for you etc etc um but yeah he's like basically a big puff piece about why unions shouldn't uh, ask for pay rises that the mm. workers deserve it to reflect the cost of living crisis um and all of that but um very very interesting um that he said to take into account upcoming cost of living measures has he taken into account that many of those people um, can't afford to live or has he taken into account maybe that instead of doing these once off temporary measures that as we've already been pointed out are probably for votes or probably for you know their token measures that aren't really going to um, you know impact in the way that they should like what have they even considered maybe like if if they're saying that you know the public pay uh, package uh, for for civil servants and all of that are is a significant chunk of the budget then these cost of living measures like surely rather than doing these once-off pieces they'd be better off actually looking at like universal basic services Mm -hmm. like actually investing that way instead of like these kind of chipping off like bits and pieces token measures to that only lines the pockets of the private companies who already have these huge profits as it is as we've seen with the electricity we've seen um all of that but like no one is talking about well what about to address this cost of living crisis to actually invest in universal basic services so people can afford to live you know um mm-hmm. th- then come back to us and say say something about the, uh you know asking for pay rises but there's not there's not even a conversation about that mm-hmm. um no no one's talking about that um it, it, yeah it's interesting the whole piece is basically telling people to to readjust their expectations when it comes to uh union negotiations and uh what we expect in the the budget and it's a very much a you know, union uh, unions are to blame that we, you know, all, you know, you could just hear the undertone in it. Like, um, and I really enjoyed the piece where um, unions are currently preparing industrial uh, action ballots, which are commencing at the end of the month in a coordinated campaign in inverted commas. Inverted commas. What's that about? Yeah. Are you trying to insinuate it's not a coordinated campaign or it is or is it a general strike? Is it like what? I'm not really sure what what the uh, the point of that was. Um, But yeah, basically, again, it just kind of feeds into what you're saying about tokenistic measures. But uh, also then the minister coming out and saying now here, reign it in Williams Union. But I think the fact that he's had to publish that in the first place means that the union's power is showing. If he yeah. has to put out a puff piece by saying, don't, don't you stare now. Don't you, don't, don't even think about it. Mm. Then, then, then he's worried. So I, all I say is uh, fair play to all the workers who are balloting over the next while. So um, who, who was the minister that has that puff piece? Uh, McGrath. Right. Okay. Michael yeah. McGrath, minister for public expenditure and reform. Yeah. Cause it, uh, again, on page 18 of yesterday's uh, Indo, uh, momentum is building for public sector unions to secure bumper pay rise for their 340,000 members. And the pieces by Amory Walsh, um, negotiators have spring in their step ahead of crunch talks. Now, the article itself is quite interesting, actually. I, I read the whole lot of it yesterday, but uh, it's saying that the minister has already said um, that the that they can expect something above what they've already negotiated, right? So the minister has acknowledged, and it doesn't say when, I don't think it says when, but 
McGrath has already said, yeah, look, we're going to do something, right? So maybe the puff piece uh, asking them to hold back is because he knows he messed up. You don't go into negotiations conceding uh, an element of of the other side's pay claim before you start the negotiations because then they move the, potentially can move the goalposts and look for for more, uh, rightly so. But um, but yeah, though maybe I'm just thinking that perhaps that's why he's panicked now or his department has panicked and said, somebody gets up to the papers quickly and tell them that to, to, to have a little bit of restraint. Because the yeah. article here by Amory Walsh is saying that, you know, so the offer, here's how she ends it. So the offer would have, have meant most state employees ended up with 7% spread over this year and next, the equivalent of 3.5%. Whatever is tabled next week is likely to be higher than that. So, you know, that's on the basis that McGrath has acknowledged that what you know when the talks broke down the previous talks were in a different space now um so you know while he said no to that he's basically said we're going to say yes to that and perhaps a little bit more so the unions have a little bit, bit of momentum the other par- mm. interesting part of this as well michelle is where it talks about uh the nurses union are due to start voting on thursday i think you mentioned that as well uh unless a meaningful offer is made now uh, Amory Walsh is saying that Liam Kelly, the Director General of the WRC, the Workplace Relations Commission, could ask that this be lifted as a condition for re-entering talks. Now, I don't think he will. I don't think he'd be stupid enough to say, drop your ballots if you want this to, to go ahead. It's the leverage that the workers have. Um, you know, The only leverage they have is the withdrawal of their labour. Uh, the nurses have shown for the first time, by the way, in 100 years when they went on strike a couple of years ago, that they're willing to do this now. So uh, the WRC may do this i hope they don't because it's the piece that will get the public sector across the line in terms of decent pay increase yeah it's interesting that you're saying that you think that he gave a bit away in the negotiations as well because he does say in this piece been like everyone has to give and take so obviously he's already given too much and he's trying to he's (laughs) trying to roll back that's very funny to see the, the two stories uh side by side um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Um, also on the front page, um, of course, the Robert Troy story. How can we not mention that mm. today? Um, but yeah, so essentially what's coming out of that now is there's a report to recommend that election candidates disclose their business interests when they're running for election. So even before they get in, they should be disclosing, um, you know, if they've property, if they've business interests before they run for public office. So it's part of um, an overhaul of the country's ethics legislation. Um, so apparently this has been kind of like coming for a while and it's just very timely that it's coming out now while the Robert Troy saga is coming out. They've put uh, Robert as um, a picture, as, as Troy as a picture as part of this story, but It'll be interesting to see what comes to that because like this review has been undertaken by the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform following repeated requests from SIPO for additional powers over many years. And like it doesn't really give you much context in the story, but then Elaine Byrne goes on to kind of tease it out a little bit more in the comment section where she's talking about, you know, the public is no longer willing to put up with a watchdog with no bite and kind of digs into um, the standards bill, which actually was discussed seven years ago and three governments ago where you know you had discussions around um conflicts of uh, interest and kind of like modernizing the requirements there and giving SIPO actual greater sanction powers and being able to like initiate investigations without having uh, to wait for complaints and stuff so it's really interesting because uh, like I, I don't remember this but the standards bill was discussed in the rocks committee in 2017 right there was 12 people spoke at the meeting 
11 were TDs, senators and counsellors for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So mm. 11 out of the 12 were all <laughs> Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael councillors, TD senators. So they they were all obviously coming out saying, oh, excessive administration requirements, wouldn't be able to keep up for that. They even went to go on and say that younger people would be put off to enter politics if they had to uh to disclose their property interest sorry lads but like if this day and age you don't like young people don't have a lot of property and business interest yeah. so i think the list would be a lot shorter um and less less of a discouragement for young people to run uh, if that was the case but uh very interesting how um as part of that discussion as well a fina gale senator said that you know if if you had to, you know, withdraw from a vote or whatever discussion because you had disclosed interests or whatever, that council meetings on land rezonings would not be able to take place at all, which I think is absolutely gas because like talk about putting your foot in it, like literally, sorry, there's too many landlords and property owners in this room that we can't make decisions if we had to step out. Like that's bizarre, like that they were they were using that as an argument as to why we shouldn't have uh, a standards bill like that deals with kind of conflicts of interest and stuff um absolutely yeah but it's 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 very and then it goes on to say oh like you know um the kind of like if you had to record your assets and you forgot one like robert troy forgot <laughs> uh it'd be true no fault of your own if you accidentally left one out and you ended up in a tribunal or whatever that's absolutely it's your fault like yeah. this is quote like this is quotes from the discussion of the iraq committee in 2017 when the standards bill has been discussed and like since then seven years have passed three governments and no one has touched it and Sipo has been laying there as um essentially a watchdog without no bite as Elaine uh describes it um but yeah basically like no one's really tolerating that anymore and kind of now this report has come out and you know probably going to push it down another seven years just going to treat us going to go through this whole rigmarole again no one wants to touch it but like even if you do as an election candidate decide that you know that, that this comes out and you have to disclose your property interests and stuff in advance we're not really dealing with the, the what we have now as well with the Robert Troy stuff. So, like, for example, oh, like, look, he might and everyone else, like, there's so many rules that are being broken. Like, and between Leo Vradkar, he's not, you know, he he's been he's got away with uh, whatever that was because you know they went through the process and said it was uh, yeah, um, i'll leave it at that uh robert troy um, robert troy now is resigning his ministerial position but he's still a td still gets a ministerial uh pension you know he's probably going to be rehabilitated in a couple of years as mm-hmm. like a reformed you know uh, he's learned his lesson la 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 whatever right but like you know the person who's been um suggested as his replacement for the minister is Derek Hillary, who was <laughs> He resigned his ministerial or who was uh take the his post was taken off him after golf game. So mm. like it's just like ah we'll wait a couple of years, rehabilitate them into another another position, and it's just jobs for the boys all around. Like it's just I just I'm just sick of it, to be honest. Like <laughs> it's a lovely but, merry-go-round. Um, yeah, it's just ridiculous. Like, oh Jesus. Yeah, can we give a, a, a shout out, two shout outs actually, first off, because I, I did see a couple of tweets around this, but very few people uh, in the media, because I've been reading the Indo, um, and I didn't see it in the Indo, but I did see it, I think, in the business post yesterday, um, you know, business post while it you know goes to print today, but they have their articles up on their website from yesterday. I was reading through one of them, but the, nobody's really given credit to the two lads who broke the story in the ditch. Um, the Indo didn't give any credit to them, and it's probably... Remember, Golfgate, when it happened, was like Eva Grace Moore, um, you know, 
you know, won all the journalistic awards for 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 blowing such a big, massive story, um, and we knew it was her. But on this one, like when you, if you were to read the Indo, you wouldn't know who broke the story. But it's the ditch and Owen McNeil and Roman Shorthall who 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 broke that story, um. But also, uh, Conor, Conor McCabe actually explained it quite well because the resignation letter or, you know, whatever he wrote himself there, Mr. Troy or Deputy Troy, uh, he was un- unapologetic sort of. You know, I've worked very hard for what I have. I, I bought my first house at 20 and all that sort of stuff. Now, people were coming in behind him and saying, yeah, fair play to him, you know, on Twitter, the usual place for for these um, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael supporters, you know, but fair play to him buying a house of 20 and then being able to expand from that and all this and you know he didn't come from privilege and all that sort of shite right uh, Conor McCabe Troy, Troy bought his this is Conor McCabe's Twitter account yesterday Troy bought his first house at 20 then he bought the ladder he pulled it up after himself now he rents out the ladder but he's only got one rung so you're stuck at the bottom and he's also a legislator so he can block any more rungs being added which is a perfect description of what's going on Um, I was looking at statistics only recently around uh, what 20 year olds earn in Ireland on average right so uh, not just 20 year olds the average wage for a worker under the age of 30 is 20 grand now Mr Troy was able to buy a house at 20 years of age now if you're 20 years of age and you're on the average wage for someone under the age of 30 um, you're going to be on 20 grand that means you can afford a mortgage of 65 grand no sorry sorry 70 grand because you can borrow three and a half times your income, right? So where are you going to buy your first property for 70 grand on in Ireland right now? It's almost a kick in the teeth to young people, to be honest, to, for, to have TDs coming out and saying this, look, I worked hard for everything I've got. I bought my first house when I was 20. I couldn't imagine buying my first house uh, at the age of 20. Um, and now with rents the way they are, it's it's just impossible. Gene Kerrigan has a, a a decent enough take on this stuff. Um, he has a piece there saying, uh, actually, I haven't put the heading in. I think he says something like, uh, Troy is a minnow um, while we're being eaten by sharks. Uh, and he's talking about this. He's not he's not downplaying Troy. He's, he's talking about how much of a fucking Egypt Troy was and doing what he did. But he's talking about... Um, you know, the homelessness crisis that we have, the housing crisis uh, and, you know, talking about very, very rich people making a killing on this based on their access to government ministers and including in that is the likes of Radker and um, and the Kenny, Michael Noon and all these people in the last 10, 12 years who've been meeting with, and he, he names them, Stephen Schwartzman, CEO of Blackstone, um, a quote from that man who, who actually, you know, got a contract from the government his quote was we're waiting to see how beaten up people's psyches get in reference to the crisis from 2008 to 2015 or so um ireland was a prime target the government the the fianna fall government had set up nama to unravel banking debt and mr schwarzman wasn't the press they barely know what they have he told the goldman sachs seminar um he then had access and met with the ministers and got a contract with nama uh to to, to dispose of some of this stuff um so there's there's that element of it, right? Talking about the housing crisis, much bigger than the little mistakes that Robert Troy made. But then I I was reminded of yesterday reading through that one about the access that these billionaires, hedge fund managers, all have to the ministers. Uh, and then I I went back to yesterday's paper. Billionaire Shannon Gas Project backer secured meeting with Varadkar after Ryan declined. So Eamon Ryan declined to meet with this guy. Um, from Shannon, uh, the, the billionaire US owner of Shannon LNG. He secured a meeting for his company with Tarnishta 
Leo Varadkar after the energy minister Eamon Ryan turned him down. Eamon Ryan turned him down in a very polite way, didn't give an excuse, just said, I can't meet with you. But Varadkar met up with him. And now this is all back on the table, the LNG terminal. So it's this country through and through. It's access to ministers. You get, you know, tokenistic uh, <laughs> taxes put onto businesses uh, to, to appease the outrage that the public have at times uh, like that. But if there's a billionaire out there or a hedge fund manager or whatever that wants to meet with a minister, you can sure as hell meet them and reshape our entire legislation to 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 facilitate those people. I don't know, Michelle, if you have any more before you have to head off. Yeah, ju- just on that, like when you're talking about there about 20 year olds and under 30 year olds and stuff and um the average wage and everything, the there's a piece here as well in the, the business post, um, the plus section as well around how um employment is up um by eight point seven percent. So at the moment, seventy-three point five percent of people are employed. But like how much of that employment is low paid? Um, mm. I think it's around twenty percent is the figure. So like, you know, we're we'll be oh look, employment is through the roof. We've never, you know, we've we've exceeded all of our records. Like obviously our our um population is increasing and stuff as well, which probably helps with the that that but also what like the increase of low paid work as well and that should like I just feel like when we're reporting employment figures, that like really stale figure really doesn't de- delve into like what does that actually look like there's more people not being able to afford to live working poor um all of that yeah just just without the analysis in the paper it's just literally given a couple of lines and that's it like it's not even considered a story to kind of tease that out and you know it maybe challenge a, a journalist who might be listening to this to maybe have a look at that and see what that like increase in employment actually looks like for people being able to afford to live and um, because it just feels like there's a lot more people working poor and struggling in the cost of living crisis as well i, I hate cost calling it the cost of living crisis as well it should be called the, the profit gouging uh crisis or whatever you want to call it but um, yeah, we need to work on how how we're going to re- reframe that mm. as as a, as the left. But um, yeah, yeah. But um, other than, other than that, um, it kind of touches on a little bit what I was saying about all, all jobs for all the boys and all. But there's a, there's a small story about um Tony Hulahan as well, <laughs> um, and the job there that that Trinity Secondment that uh was supposed to be investigated. It's all this like, oh, we'll investigate it, we'll drag it out, we'll do a report, mm. it'll take months, years, maybe we'll never see the report until people start kicking up about it. It's kind of like diffuses anytime there's like a big reaction to something and the, the public are annoyed and we we demand something and they say, we'll do a report. The report takes months and months. So this report, uh, this review um of the abandoned secondment of Tony Hulan. Uh, the obviously the former chief medical officer, he was proposed to be seconded into Trinity. Um, it was supposed to be this all happened in April. So the Stephen Donnelly demanded that an external report be done into the secondment, which was approved by Robert Watt, uh, the Department of Health um, general secretary. Um, but it was supposed to be done two months ago. Um, there's no detail as to where it is in process. They were supposed to interview what was supposed to interview Hulahan. Um, there has been no progress whatsoever on it, and here we are again. the The moment has diffused a bit. Anger is now on another person, Troy, who they'll also put a report into. You know that will be pushed down, diffused. The report will be buried. It'll be quiet. You know, released or whatever. But look, it's good to see it's been reported that's not come out. Um, but still nowhere, still no information on what that's going to look like. Um, but yeah, it's just another one of those that kind of like it. it you just 
how are you supposed to have any faith in these processes? So I'm seeing this time and time again of like scandal, right? We'll do a report. Nothing comes of the report. I come out six months later or whatever, like years down. Yeah, just, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And just on that, going back to your uh, profit gouging um, story earlier on, right? Um, there's, there's an article, and actually very interesting one, and it opens up a, a wider debate, which, you know, I've had myself over the years. But there's, um, I think it's page four of t- today's Sunday in, though, teachers in high cost areas might have to be paid more. Um, obviously, it's talking about Dublin being so absolutely ridiculously expensive that if you're a teacher living in a cheaper, to, uh, more affordable area to live, more affordable counties, um, then um you're better off than somebody who's a teacher in Dublin. Uh, um, may, he's the suggestion here in the article is by Wayne O'Connor. and uh, He says, teachers are choosing jobs in cheaper parts of the country as schools struggle to retain staff. So they're struggling to get staff in the Dublin region is the implication I'm getting from this um, article. And now it's coming from, in, in fairness, there's a lot of quotes there from the ASTI, the uh, Secondary School Teachers um, General Secretary, Kieran Christie. Um, talking about yeah, uh, trying to hire staff and find staff, and it's it's impossible. But what what I found interesting is that it's you know, and I understand that journalists is focusing on one particular area, and that's fine. But like, it's the same for everybody based in the Dublin area. And the example he gives here is that London, and uh, there is a London waiting for. Um, I think he says essential jobs. What I thought there was a London waiting, um, system. For most jobs there, I know um, if if you're working in retail, for instance, being Q in London, you get more wages than outside, and it, it, like you're on the same wage, same hourly rate of pay, and all the rest of it. But you get a London waiting added to it. It's almost like an allowance, and it's the exact same thing that should happen in Dublin, Cork, Galway, or wherever else there is high costs of living. Um, Retail workers, not just retail workers, but everybody, nurses, the whole lot, are facing extremely high costs of living, and uh, it's not, you know, it's leading to poverty levels um, and increased poverty levels, increased deprivation levels, all that sort of stuff. So it might it might be something to 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 deal with there. The one of the last stories I have, um, <laughs> revenue will not give detail on twenty tax settlements totaling 1 billion euros. So revenue have made it unpublished. They've made unpublished tax settlements of more than 1.36 billion during the course of last year. This related to 62,418 separate disclosures. So revenue have this system. You admit that you owe money that you didn't pay in the past and, and we won't prosecute you or we'll go easy on you and all the rest of it, right? Um, but what's really interesting about this is they said that the top 20 20 individual companies, 20 unpublished settlements were worth 1.052 billion. So of those 20, an average, a company made an average disclosure of unpaid taxes of 52 million each. That's absolutely mental money from the top 20 companies. Now, they're saying revenue won't give us the the greater detail around those top 20. They package them off, put them into a package so that we can't identify who these companies are, they're saying. Um, they, it wouldn't be fair to disclose them. I don't understand that. I, I don't understand why a company can't be uh, named and shamed for a- attempting to avoid paying over 50 million euros worth of tax each at a time when 
um, we're, you know, we talk about a cost of living or a profit gouging crisis that we have at the moment. The people are really struggling to make ends meet. So therefore, they need investment in public services. They need free transport. They need uh, like there's an article there in in one of the papers in, in today's paper as well. I think it is about the rotunda. Um, rotunda says lack of space raises risk of infections. Basically, the Rotunda Maternity Hospital has no space in it and it's packed. If you ever go in there, which I was uh, fortunate or unfortunate to be in there um, a couple of years ago, there's just no space for anything. And it's it's leading to infections in, in, in babies and infections in the mothers and other expectant mothers. That's because we there's so many companies that are avoiding paying taxes. And when they get caught, we don't name and shame them. We hide them in a block of 20 so that nobody can see who they are. But over one point one over one billion owed by 20 companies is just a ridiculous amount uh, of money owed that could have been spent on, on proper infrastructure. Michelle, have you got anything else there? Yeah, just um there was a, a definitely a sponsored piece that caught my eye. I didn't know it was sponsored by like Deloitte or something. Um but it's talking about how SME staff can be enticed by uh, this new idea that this the tax strategy group, um, who, who I'm not too familiar with their work, but essentially they're a think tank uh, chaired by the Department of Finance. Um, and what they're coming out and saying is that small businesses should be offering their employees shares in the companies so that they'd have more skin in the game. And like, without, I'm sure, particularly Connor McCabe, I'm sure would have a good analysis on some of this and maybe pick it up another time. But essentially it's saying like, instead of paying your staff in wages and cash or whatever way they want to put it, that you should look at this, uh, what they're calling it, key employee engagement program, which what I see as a move to quieten workers number one because if you have skin in the game they're trying to make you feel like you're part of the family you're part of the company look you have shares you know you get shares instead of, get, get, instead of getting paid uh your wages and it just it's like they're like oh we'll give them a little taste of maybe what the one percent look like so they can still aim to be to to, to work their way up and maybe one day you too could be a billionaire with this share or whatever yeah. but to be honest i actually see it as a really kind of anti- union move in a way and anti like because with the without because it yeah I, I don't know there's something something just I I maybe pick it up another time but there's just it's oh. interesting that the department are uh something thank the department are recommending that and on another page the department is coming out and saying union should rein it in with what they're expecting uh from pay talks and all of that but this is interesting um and I wonder maybe we could tease it out again um but yeah, it's a conversation that was actually had in the 1970s and 80s, actually, in Australia uh, around these types of schemes and including uh, pension schemes and whether that was um, workers buying into the capitalist system uh, by by having um, shares in these things. But th- it goes a little bit deeper on this, where when workers have shares in the company, they're dependent on that company outdoing another company, and therefore it's easier to sell pay cuts. To, to workers who have shares in in it saying look look at the profit figures that we have they're quite bad they're awful um we're going to have to compete with you know company x across the road and therefore we're all going to have to tighten our belts a little bit and that facilitates the that whole race to the bottom which is something obviously we wouldn't want to support w- what would be better um and you know a lot of trade unions have looked for this and we have it in some semi-states in ireland already uh, and some companies um but would be having 
uh, effective worker representative board members to dictate where the company is going um, rather than shares in the company. That would that would give you a little bit more of a say on the operations and the policies that are adopted by the company. But yeah, I think I think it might actually be an interesting one to have a conversation about. Maybe we will have a special around some of that stuff. But um, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to discuss there. Yeah, just um, in the comment section again, which oh, there's always some like absolute mad thing said in the in the in this like as you said I don't know how so this gets published but anyway um Dan O'Brien is coming out with this big warmongering piece around how you know and like kind of couching it in language of like so, like you know we need to support Ukraine but what he's actually saying is it's kind of lobbying again for NATO um defense budgets like give up our neutrality um and it is like obviously disappointing to continually see that um and he mentions um you know how more people are supporting nato um obviously around uh, discussions around war anyway particularly with all of the lobbying that's been done and that's going to happen anyway but i think the it quotes um a business post poll as well that i'm pretty sure we unpicked on this podcast as well has been um written in a way where it wasn't exactly as it seemed but yeah apparently there's due to be another poll out um, as well around you know the support of NATO uh, membership and all of that but it is worrying to see like you know how he's saying it's a good thing that defense budgets are being increased it's a good thing that NATO um, is being expanded um, and that you know all of these defense structures are being strengthened this like language of like you know m- more war but like at the same time you know I don't like we're we're and it also obviously yesterday was uh I I was coming I saw some people coming back from marking Independence Day in Ukraine and I know Lizensky was out um posting unfortunate pictures again of sold soldiers with um Nazi symbolism on on the the um on their uniforms but like it's just like where are we going with this like at what cost is all of this warmongering coming out with more weapons more war more deaths you know we have like even the european commission coming out saying uh, ursula von der leyen saying you know we're we're with kiev in the long run and like saying you know they're brave fight and all of that but like we're celebrating the continuation of this war no one is and the people who do speak up like sabina higgins who come out and say stuff around like you know what are the alternatives here to continually pushing this war continuing growing defense growing you know all this warmongering um it's just not on it's not just not in the papers it's just mm. not being discussed it's not been discussed in anywhere um and to me that's a big worry because we've just passed a six months mark there yesterday and the same day as uh that independence day but mm. still there's you know uh, yeah i just it's just worrying to me that they're still talking about heightened uh you know, more warmongering um, off mm. the back of this. And we don't seem to have opened up that conversation wider. And when it does, people are shot down uh, for being able to, you know, for having those kind of conversations. So to me, it's a bit of a worry. I was hoping to see a little bit more of analysis of what that might be in the papers uh, this weekend, but it wasn't in the business post, only to encourage more war. So that's disappointing. Um, but that's kind of all the main stories that I was reading anyway in the in the business post today. Yeah, 
just just on that one as well like as again i'm reading it and and it does seem to pla- there seems to be a platform there for people who want more war and fighting back and, and again, we've said it umpteen times on the show you know fight back with other people's lives <laughs> from the safety of dublin or cork or galway or wherever they are here on this island um and it's very frustrating but you know what i found bizarre and i don't have the article in front of me was the attacks on the pope um yesterday uh, in the papers because the pope calls for peace um you know wouldn't be a fan of the Catholic Church whatsoever. Uh, but, you know, sometimes they can be right about some of this stuff. But you you wouldn't have expected the Irish media 40 or 50 years ago, there would be no hope that they'd, they'd hear the Pope and they'd go, yeah, you're, he, you know, what? he's absolutely right. But now the attacks on the Pope uh, for calling for peace and saying that, that, you know, we shouldn't see any more innocent people being killed. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very um, simple message. It's one that, you know, 100 years ago 120 years ago people were making um we need peace on both sides we need to of course we know we understand russia is the aggressor here we we are not happy with them um but at some stage this war has to end and it, the sooner it ends the less lives are, are are lost so let's figure this out in a, a diplomatic way so it's very frustrating it's interesting that you bring up the Pope there, actually, because the front of the Business Post, actually, I wasn't going to delve into, but now that you've brought up the Pope, I didn't think we'd be talking about the Pope today. Um, but uh, apparently it's a Sunday, uh, so why, in, in, why not? Um, but they're talking about um, the reforms in the church, actually. So the Pope has actually gone out to all of the Catholics around the world to participate in this series of meetings where they can set out their opinions and like faith and all that and how you know, they could like modernize the church essentially. And the Irish Catholics, I'm not sure if it's all, the, if it's the just the priests or Catholics in general, but they've basically said like, what the, it must be uh, the, the membership of the church say that they want uh, the church to provide reparations for abuse scandals, calls for optional celibacy, uh, married priests and female priests, a desire for greater role of lay people, and a clear and overwhelming call for a full inclusion of LGBT people in the church expressed by all ages. So that's <laughs> very interesting. Um, but if they can say all that, um, and she has a position of peace um, in the war as well, like, doesn't sound too bad, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> doesn't at all. Um, well, look, will we wrap it up there? I, I don't have any more stories, really. Um, I want to thank um, my co-host, Michelle Bourne, for joining us. Um, we're all <laughs> looking forward to, in two weeks' time, we'll be on the island of Inishir, uh to hear from people like um, Jeremy Corbyn and Vijay Prashad and Bernadette McAlisky and a whole heap of other people. So um, really looking forward to that summer school that's been organized by Trademark and Left Block. So um, if you support the the work that we're doing and you want to attend those events in future, please uh, do um, find out a little bit more about us. You can go to leftblock.ie or else support us on the Patreon by going patreon.com forward slash leftblock. Um, thanks again. And we'll talk to you all next week.